0: Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr Louise Coogler and today I welcome back Dr Cheryl Bouhay to the podcast. Today we are discussing post-traumatic stress disorder, both in a general context and in the context of the medic in the pandemic. Cheryl is an Otago Medical School graduate and a fellow of the Royal Australia and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. She works at White Matter DHB as the primary care liaison psychiatrist. She provides specialist support to GP practices within the West Auckland catchment area, and she's involved in GP teaching and is a regular contributor to the mental health resources in the Pathways. Thank you, Cheryl, for being with me today. It's a pleasure to welcome you back. Uh, Thank you for having me. So PTSD is a common disorder with a lifetime prevalence of about 8%. It's included in the trauma and stressor category of the DSM-5, and the onset can occur after either a threatened or an actual exposure to a threat. So Cheryl, I wonder if we could start with some examples of traumatic experiences. Thanks, Louise.
1: So in PTSD, um, trauma can uh, take in several forms. And it is important to note the different characteristics um, of a particular trauma that gives rise to PTSD symptoms. So you need to think about the nature of the trauma, the duration, severity, and the proximity of a person's exposure to the actual trauma. So some examples of traumatic experiences include natural disasters like earthquakes, floods, bushfires, serious accidents such as motor vehicle accidents, severe uh, physical injury, uh, rape or sexual assault, domestic violence, being involved in, in a war, uh, witnessing a murder or a violent death or even a, a traumatic um, birth experience can can give rise to PTSD. So I mentioned 8%. Is this the actual number as
0: to how common it is across the lifespan? And is there a female to male predominance?
1: Like you mentioned earlier, Louise, the lifetime prevalence is about 8%, but there's an additional 5 to 15% of those who experience um, subclinical forms of PTSD. Uh, the prevalence um, rate is higher in women um, compared to men, so about 12% versus 6%. So. The ratio from female to male is about two to one. And you've got some groups that are at higher um, have higher rates of PTSD. Um, and these include um, war veterans and emergency services workers. And PTSD, it's important to note that it is a highly comorbid condition. Um, and about two-thirds of those with PTSD have at least two other comorbid conditions. And these can include. Um, depressive disorders, substance use disorders, and other anxiety disorders. So
0: just thinking a moment about underlying mechanisms, is there a clear underlying mechanism,
1: Cheryl? So there are um, several um, underlying mechanisms. So uh, one is some biological factors that come into play. So there's the norogenergic and the endogenous opiate systems, involved um, in giving rise to PTSD, and also the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis have also been implicated. There are also psychological um, factors um, involved, such as um, we've heard about classical conditioning, where a traumatic experience can be paired with stimulus that later service triggers to traumatic events. And also there's the avoidance part of classical conditioning as well.
0: So we mentioned the DSM-5 criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. I wonder if you can run us through this briefly to get our head around what is required.
1: Just going through the DSM-5 criteria, I think it's good to know what the main subheadings are and um, so you know what to look out for um, when assessing someone for PTSD. So the first one is exposure to, the, to actual or threatened death or serious injury in one or more of the following ways. So it could be through directly experiencing the traumatic event, witnessing um, a traumatic event as it occurred to others. It could be through learning about that event that may have occurred to a family member or a close friend. Or um, you can have repeated, uh, experience repeated or extreme exposure to aversive details of of a particular Traumatic events, such as what occurs in first responders and police um, officers. So that's the first category. The second one is the re experiencing of the trauma. So this can occur in at least one of the following ways. So you can have recurrent, involuntary, or intrusive distressing memories of the trauma. You can have nightmares, flashbacks, or significant distress at the exposure of any triggers to the trauma. So we've talked about the exposure and then the re-experiencing. The next one is avoidance, which can occur in one or two of the following ways. So you may avoid distressing memories, thoughts, or feelings about the traumatic event, or you may avoid um, any external reminders of the trauma. PTSD um, is also associated with at least two negative changes to a person's thoughts and mood associated with a trauma. So this can include um, inability to remember aspects of the trauma, negative beliefs or expectations about a person's self, others, or the world. They may have distorted thoughts about what may have caused the trauma or the consequences of it. A person may have negative feelings um, such as fear, horror, anger, or guilt or shame as a result of the trauma. They're unable to experience positive feelings have reduced interest, and just feeling detached from from others around them. You can also have hyperarousal symptoms, so at least two of these. So this can take the form of irritability and angry outbursts, reckless behavior, hypervigilance, difficulty sleeping, and problems with concentration. So for PTSD, the duration is more than a month, but if it's about three days to one month of symptoms, we call that acute stress disorder rather than PTSD. So with all these symptoms, the symptom clusters, for it to to qualify as PTSD, it needs to result in impairment in functioning and that you have excluded that the symptoms have been caused by substance use or a general medical condition. In DSM-5, there are also um, some specifiers for PTSD such as um, delayed expression where you meet the criteria after six months uh, following the trauma. And you can also have dissociative symptoms such as depersonalization and derealization where you might feel detached from yourself uh, or the surroundings seem unreal. So that can happen for some people.
0: Okay, well, thank you for that. So Cheryl, you mentioned PTSD may be simple or complex. I wonder if you could tell us the difference between these two, please.
1: So simple PTSD arises from a single discrete traumatic event. Complex PTSD, on the other hand, arises from what we call complex trauma, which which are multiple traumatic events occurring over a period of time. So examples of complex trauma include multiple incidents of child abuse, um, including sexual abuse, prolonged domestic violence, you know, people who are in concentration camps or have been to, subjected to torture, you know, people who um, have been enslaved or have been in genocide camps. Complex PTSD is not a separate diagnostic entity under the, the DSM-5, it is actually an ICD-10 diagnosis. And in complex PTSD, the diagnostic criteria for PTSD has been met at some point during the course of the disorder. But in addition to that, there are other things that um, there are additional criteria uh, to meet a diagnosis of complex PTSD. And these include emotional dysregulation, having a negative self-concept where the person would have um, persistent beliefs that, you know, they're defeated or worthless, worthless, feeling worthless in themselves. And they might have feelings of shame or guilt or failure related to their trauma. They can also have interpersonal disturbances where they have difficulties in sustaining relationships or feeling close to others.
0: How may a patient present to us in primary care, Cheryl, if they have PTSD? What will they complain of?
1: So, those with PTSD can present a primary care in, in many different ways. They can present with non-specific symptoms such as, you know, poor concentration and poor sleep, which can occur in many different mental health conditions. Um, so they might not readily disclose, you know, PTSD uh, features if they are experiencing them. Some people might readily disclose symptoms of PTSD um, and then, you, you know, it's more evident, you know, what you're, dealing with during the consult. Also, they can present um, with symptoms of comorbid conditions um, such as depression or substance use. So if that's the case, you just need to probe a bit more if you're suspecting um, comorbid PTSD.
0: The diagnosis of PTSD, can this be made in primary care? Or if we suspect this, do we need to refer on to? And if we're
1: referring on, who do we refer to? So yes, the diagnosis can be made in primary care and um, within the primary care setting, you can assess for the presence of, you know, those PTSD features. You can also look at the severity, for example, the number and severity of nightmares, flashbacks, the severity of their anticipatory anxiety and avoidance behaviors. You know, how is their functioning impaired? Are they able to um, go about their daily activities, go to work, um, study, or um, maintain their relationships, and also um, elaborate on, you know, are there any safety concerns? So, yeah, assessing for those sorts of things, and also excluding any comorbid mental health conditions. Like I said, you know, PTSD is highly comorbid, and also excluding medical conditions, substance use and medication-related factors that might be an alternative explanation or further worsening their anxiety. So um, medical conditions include those that affect the neurological, cardiorespiratory, and endocrine systems. Substance use might be, you know, caffeine intoxication, nicotine withdrawal, amphetamine use, and also you've got medications that are prescribed that can worsen anxiety such as some antihypertensives, some asthma treatments, treatments for Parkinson's. Um, so it's just good to make sure that nothing else is um, contributing to their anxiety levels. You can refer a person to specialist mental health services if there is you know, moderate to severe symptoms, which is associated with moderate to severe functional impairment. And Definitely, if there are safety concerns, um, do refer this person to us, or if the presentation is complex with multiple physical or mental health comorbidities, where we need to tease out what would be the appropriate management and treatment. Also, if your local district health board has specialist mental health advisory lines available, you you may be able to access specialist advice on management even if the patient's presentation does not meet criteria for a referral to tertiary services. So, yeah, I think make the most out of that if that's available. Cheryl, management, I understand, is multimodal.
0: So let's start with non-pharmacological therapy, such as CBT
1: and EMDR. So there are psychological treatments for PTSD, and it's important um, just to be aware of of these options, because usually in PTSD, it will be a combination of pharmacological and psychological treatments. So in terms of therapies, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT and eye movement desensitization and reprocessing are evidence-based therapies for PTSD. So for a trauma-focused CBT, this may require you know, 12 to 16 sessions. So it's not a quick fix. And the elements that are covered here include education around you know PTSD symptoms, self-monitoring, um, basic anxiety management, systematic desensitization, relaxation and breathing strategies, and also cognitive restructuring. And for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is also referred to as um, EMDR, this specific therapy uses hand and finger movements to induce horizontal eye movement. So the patient would focus on finger movements for about 10 to 15 minutes. The EMDR would activate the traumatic memories that the person is unable to recall or experience in their normal state. And then the recalled memories are accompanied by emotions. And then in the presence of the therapist in a safe environment, the patient is able to get relief from this. So there are some EMDR therapists out in the community and it's really around finding out which therapists have that specialised skill training.
0: Pharmacotherapy. What is the first-line therapy and how effective is it?
1: So with medications, it's important to continue these for at least a year if the person responds to it and then gradually withdraw if you decide to stop it. So the, the first-line um, treatments include your SSRIs, um, antidepressants. So out of these, paroxetine, sertraline and fluoxetine are the preferred SSRIs and you prescribe it up to the maximum licensed dose. Venlafaxine is also a first-line treatment and you can prescribe it at up to 300 milligrams daily. Cheryl, at what point do we add a second line and what sort of agents may we see being used here? I think with there are second line treatments, so if the first lines don't work, second line treatments can be started within the primary care setting. So you know that's when you might be able to discuss it with a specialist mental health over the phone for advice, and then you can initiate treatment within primary care. And the second line medication options um, include your second generation, antipsychotics so they're effective for intrusion symptoms like flashbacks and nightmares but not so much in the avoidance hyperarousal symptoms and the second generation antipsychotics can be prescribed as monotherapy or as an adjunct to your first-line medications so examples of these antipsychotics include olanzapine, risperidone and quetiapine and each of them have their own Side effect profiles, and you need to do some monitoring, especially around the, the metabolic parameters. Other second line treatments include mirtazapine, um, which is another antidepressant. It's good for sleep and anxiety, and you take it at night. There's the monoamine um, oxidase inhibitor phenelzine that can also be used, and also um, prazosin, which um, I've been getting a lot of calls about from GPs through the advice line. So prazosin, um, there's evidence for use of this in PTSD-related nightmares and sleep disturbance. And you start at, you know, one milligram at night, and then you titrate it gradually. But you have to monitor for hypotension, of course. However, there's been supply issues for prazosin. There's supply for apoprazosin from the beginning of November under section 29 of the medicines act. So it is a forever changing thing, but instead of prazosin, other alternatives that can be used, um, which um, I must, must say that this would be off-label indication. One option is doxazacin, which you also, um, we, you take once a day and you need to monitor blood pressure like prazosin, And you have to be a bit more cautious as it has a longer half-life than. Prazosin. Clonidine is the second alternative where um, you can take it in tablet form or as a seven day patch. Um, And you just have to, you know, be careful and, you know, start on a lower dose, um, especially, you know, if you're looking at the elderly, adolescents, those underweight with eating disorders or those with renal impairment. And again, you know, you need to monitor for blood hypotension sedation and dizziness. Those are the alternative agents to prazosin. And there's also some evidence for the use of tricyclic antidepressants and PTSD, such as amitriptyline and imipramine.
0: Before we conclude today, I wonder if we can discuss the effect of the pandemic on health professionals. There are some worrying data coming from overseas. What do we know so far about the impact of the pandemic on our colleagues' mental health?
1: Yeah so it's been you know interesting times for us all and um, it's not surprising that the COVID-19 pandemic brings you know a high mental health um, morbidity with it and there's been lots of studies um, internationally that looks at the mental health impact of COVID-19 and there's a uh, CDC survey of 5000 adults during the pandemic and it found that about 40% of those people had at least one mental health or behavioral problem. You know, 30% had anxiety or depression issues, and 26% had some form of trauma-related um, stress disorder. There's also been surveys in you know, Spain and Italy which showed high rates of PTSD, depression, and anxiety, especially in some groups like you know, people who actually become unwell with COVID, with respiratory symptoms, and present a hospital. Prevalence of PTSD in healthcare workers, um, studies have shown that this is as high as 55%. So, you know, it's a really stressful time, especially for us in healthcare. In terms of PTSD, as we've been talking about PTSD and trauma, so pandemic-related traumatic experiences can contribute to our sense of fear, danger, and helplessness. And these particular traumas include, involve, um, people at risk, such as um, those who have themselves suffered from COVID and potential death. Also, you know, people who have um, had family, you know, as family members and healthcare workers have witnessed other suffering and death. Also, you know, there are people who have learned about the death or risk of death in a family member due to the virus. So that's a very traumatic experience. And also there are some groups of people who are exposed to lots of aversive details regarding the pandemic, such as journalists, you know, first responders and health professionals. So these traumatic stressors also overlap with all the other stressors that contribute to a person's vulnerability in developing PTSD. And I can relate to some of this as some of us who are juggling working from home, telehealth, and then you've got family around. So it's a highly stressful time. And these general stressors raise a person's baseline anxiety level on top of the other things, you know, traumatic scenarios that come with a pandemic. And some of these general stressors include, you know, being exposed to COVID, being socially isolated, having issues with employment and finances, needing to work from home with children is a general stressor for many, being a caregiver of um, someone who's um, vulnerable physically, having to make difficult medical decisions. And there was also mention of, um, you know, having inadequate PPE in the workplace because you were fearing of, you know, the risk of contamination. So it all adds up together. But there are protective factors in, you know, from developing pandemic-related PTSD, and that includes having good social support, having a stable work environment, you know, you know, stable financial situation having adequate healthcare resource and feeling safe in the workplace, like, you know, having adequate PPE, timely COVID-19 testing, access to wellness programs. And I think we need to look at all these stressors. And then on top of that, each of us, you know, we're all human. You know, we all have our own predisposing vulnerabilities that it is all additive. So, you know, family history of mental illness, if, you know, a person has, um, a history of childhood trauma, comorbid conditions, it all adds up. So, you know, it's a very um, difficult time.
0: And Cheryl, are there any preventative measures we can take in New Zealand to help with the added mental health stress?
1: If you're a healthcare provider, you um, know, if you're providing healthcare to those at risk of developing PTSD, it's important to, you know, raise awareness that PTSD can um, emerge, especially during this time. And if you are seeing people who are in high-risk groups for developing PTSD, do screen for it. Like I mentioned, you know those who've had severe COVID or feared of you know, imminent death from, from COVID, those who've had family members become affected by COVID, and also frontline um, healthcare workers. Also assess for comorbid mental health conditions like depression and prolonged grief. For those who have lost a loved one through the pandemic and initiate initiate timely treatment. So, consider the availability of online interventions because it's not as easy to go out there and see a therapist face to face. So, for us as healthcare workers who are at risk of developing PTSD, it is important to practice self care. So, you know, you talked about exercise, so the basics nutrition, exercise, getting enough sleep. Avoid and address any burnout as, um, you know, if you leave these unaddressed, problems can overlap and lead to acute stress disorder and PTSD. So look into the available supports around you, you know, to help manage stressors. And it it can be practical support. But for some of us, you know, it could be, you know, spiritual or religious services that can um, provide you um, additional support in a different way. Do look at, um, you know, consider psychological assistance, um, you know, to help deal with burnout, adjustment problems, you know, family issues, and other mental health concerns. And for us in healthcare, we can access that through, you know, EAP, through our organization. Like I know in the DHBs, they provide that. Um, but you can also approach organizations like Medical Assurance Society, Medical Protection Society, who can arrange psychological support for you. And again, you know, doctors, um, we probably not always take our own advice, but see your own healthcare provider who can, you know, evaluate and initiate treatment in a timely manner. So that's my advice for, for you know, the healthcare worker and, and during this time. But if you're looking at strategies that we can implement in the workplace, tips for that would be You know, be prepared, ensure that, you know, you have adequate PPE and adequate, you know, practical measures in place. Make sure you have adequate rest and breaks. Look into your, you know, working conditions. So if you have an at-risk staff member, can they be reassigned um, somewhere else? Because they'll be, you know, they may be anxious about um, the safety of their family members. Can staff members be inc- excluded for non-essential tasks or, you know, making arrangements around childcare provision, you know, if there are school closures and you have to work long hours. So that because uncertainty around that raises anxiety levels um, for those affected. Do arrange some regular information and feedback sessions with your managers. So you, you're in, kept in the loop talk with your colleagues. So how has the COVID, um, you know, affected you? And it, it helps to process things um, at the time rather than putting it aside and, and not addressing it. And in some places overseas, they they even use some sensory tools in the workplace to help reduce anxiety and just recalibrate. So whether, you know, having a quiet area you know, in the workplace to help relax and unwind, you know, using sensory tools like, you know, teas, lotions, aromatherapy, those have been helpful overseas. So is that something that we can implement here so that you can just find those simple comforts, which is, you know, you know, would be helpful as well. And to conclude our podcast today, Cheryl, please, your take home messages. So take home messages uh, following today. Firstly, Um, just know that a trauma could be a single event, but it can also be a series of traumas. It's just important to to keep that in mind um, when um, assessing for PTSD. Uh, Secondly, do screen um, for PTSD and those presenting with anxiety as a possible comorbid condition who, for those who may present in other ways, such as with depression or substance use, because they might be um, comorbid or substance use could be part of self-medicating a uh, PTSD that hasn't been um, diagnosed. Thirdly, uh, management of PTSD is usually multimodal and uses medications and psychological strategies. Fourthly, you know, the pandemic um, is associated with high mental health morbidity, so not just for PTSD. So therefore you screen for mental health issues and the people you see and address these promptly. And finally, you know, as healthcare professionals who have our own vulnerabilities and non-work-related stressors, it is important that we look after ourselves and be willing to seek support sooner than later. So that's, I'll finish there.
0: Wonderful. Thank you once again for joining me on the podcast. Uh, If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points, please log them and you'll find a list of resources, including Cheryl's wonderful handout on our website, goodfellowunit.org.